Well, so good to see everyone this morning. Welcome to our worship time through the Word. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 39. And I want to begin by really voicing a prayer that we find in Psalm 39, a prayer that likely you have never prayed before, or if you have prayed this prayer, uh, you likely wouldn't admit it today. Here's the prayer. Lord, remove your torment from me. Because of the force of your hand, I am finished. It reads differently in another translation, but it's helpful. Lord, please stop striking me. I am exhausted by the blows from your hand. Uh, That's a prayer that King David prayed. And it's a prayer that your pastor has prayed often in recent weeks. It comes from Psalm 39, verse 10. You can see it if your Bible is open. Uh, Two verses later, it says that when David prayed this prayer, King David, the warrior who fought and slew Goliath, David, the great artist, musician, scholar, warrior, leader, that when David prayed this prayer, he prayed it with tears. And I can tell you that the same has been true for me as I've prayed this prayer, and it's even been true today. David, though, as he prayed this prayer, he found that the Lord is faithful. He prayed this prayer and discovered or rediscovered that the Lord is reliable, even in the hardest, darkest, most desperate times, the Lord is faithful. And I have discovered and rediscovered the very same truth as I have prayed that verse and every other verse that we read in Psalm 39. It's interesting to me that scholars are unable to tell us uh, the historic connections of Psalm 39. There are so many psalms in our Bibles that were written uh, really as a response to some crisis in David's life. David would go through a difficulty and he would pray and he would write that prayer down and it would be recorded as one of our psalms. For instance, Psalm 57, that's the prayer that David prayed when he was caught in a cave hiding from Saul because Saul was seeking to kill him. And so he prayed a prayer, wrote it down, Psalm 57. Psalm 51, that's the prayer that David prayed when he got caught in sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 3 is the prayer that he prayed when his son Absalom attempted a coup and attempted to kill his father, David, Psalm 3. So what was the political crisis? What was the military crisis? What was the family crisis that prompted this prayer in Psalm 39? And we don't know. And maybe there was no crisis. Maybe the Lord just led David through a time of of darkness and despair that was unconnected with life's circumstances. All we know is how David described his emotional pain. 
We'll read the whole psalm in a moment, but in verse 2, David says that his pain, his emotional pain was intensifying. In verse 3, he says that it burned him like a fire. And if we look at other places in the book of Psalms, we see many ways that David expressed his emotional pain. He said his emotional pain felt like a fire in his gut in Psalm 38. He said it felt like a wounded heart in Psalm 109. He said it felt like a parched throat in Psalm 69. He repeatedly compared his depression and his despondency to a pain in his bones. He said it was like his bones were shaking within his body, verse uh, chapter 6, Psalm 6. He said it was like his bones were painfully disjointed, Psalm 22. He said it was like his bones were wasting away, Psalm 31, like they were weak and brittle, Psalm 32, like they were crushed, Psalm 42, like his bones were burned, Psalm 102. Please understand that David's bones were fine. It's just that his emotional pain was like a bone-deep cancer in his life. David also connected his emotional struggle with mental exhaustion. He said that his burden was too heavy for him to bear, Psalm 38. He declared that his strength was fading away like a lengthening shadow, Psalm 109. He said that he was weary from groaning, Psalm 6, weary from crying, Psalm 69, weary from grief, Psalm 119. He used words like consumed and overtaken, overcome, dejected, and depressed. He said he was ridiculed by his enemies and dreaded by his friends, Psalm 31. He said he felt alone and abandoned, even by the Lord, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. Yet, as I said, David found hope. He found hope in the Lord. Now, he didn't find 100% healing, and he did not find perfect peace, not in this life or at least in Psalm 39, but he found enough. He found that the Lord is faithful, and he learned that the faithfulness of the Lord was all he needed. So I've been on this journey with David and with Psalm 39, and the words of this psalm have captivated me for, for weeks. I have read them and prayed them literally hundreds of times. And through this psalm, I too have found hope, hope in the Lord. Not 100% healing, not perfect peace, but I've found enough. I've found that the Lord is faithful and his faithfulness is all I need. And so perhaps this exercise is more for me than for you. But if you'll permit me, I would just like to read Psalm 39, 13 verses. I would just like to declare it aloud. Could I do that? Psalm 39, I want to read the entire psalm. Bible says, I said, I will guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silent even from speaking good and my pain intensified. My heart grew hot within me as I mused a fire burned. I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me aware 
of the end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long. My lifespan is nothing, is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands only as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Rescue me from all of my transgressions and do not make me the taunt of fools. I am speechless. I do not open my mouth because of what you have done. Remove your torment from me. Because of the force of your hand, I am finished. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. Hear my prayer and listen to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am here with you as an alien, a temporary resident like all my ancestors. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and I am gone. You see, I love that psalm because it's filled with so many contrasts. If you were to look at a great, beautiful painting, you would notice that it has so many contrasts. It has bright colors and it has dark colors. It has complementary colors that match and it has contrasting colors that that don't match. It, it, it has sharp lines and it has subtle fades. It, it takes all of that to make a great painting. And Psalm 39 is like that. There's complaint here, honest complaint. There's hopelessness, there's fear, there's pain, there's frustration, but there's also hope and confidence and faith. And for me, Psalm 39 has been the salve from the Lord that I've needed in some hard times. For two years, I feel like I've been walking uh, through a tunnel that's grown darker and darker and darker. But through Psalm 39, the Lord has spoken to me, encouraged me, strengthened me. Uh, I've written literally tens of thousands of words on Psalm 39. I'm not gonna share them uh, with you uh, today, uh, you don't want to be here that long, but I'm posting them a little bit at a time online. And if you're interested, you could read them there. But I want to focus on just really two or three verses from that psalm uh, this morning. And then we're going we're gonna to have a, an awkward shift in the sermon. And I want to focus on some other verses and we'll try to put them all together at the end. Uh, but there are some verses right in the middle of the psalm that I think just fit with what our goal is for the message today. Look back into Psalm 39, verse 4. The scripture says, David prayed, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am, how short-lived I am. David says, make me aware of the brevity of my life. That tells us that David had really lost sight of the fact that life is brief, that life is short. And most of the time, much shorter than we anticipate. Life is short and he prays, Lord, remind me, help me to see just how brief life is. And then he prays something very similar in the next verse. In fact, verse five, he says, you have made my days just inches long. My lifespan 
is as nothing compared to you. Yes, every human being stands only as a vapor. You know, it is so easy to get stuck in a rut of complacency or depression or anxiety or, or, or malaise and just stay there, just live there. But what we need is what David needed, a greater awareness of the brevity of life to just prompt us to get out of that rut and to seek a different kind of life. Look at verse 6, 4, 5, and 6. 6 says, yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Uh, not only did David need to be reminded of the importance of the brevity of life, but he also needed to be reminded of, of how our priorities can become out of whack, how we can be careless with choosing and following in our lives what we think is important when it's, when it's not really what's most important. And so like David, we often need a course correction. That's what David needed and that's what he was praying for. But we have something that David didn't have. We have Christ. And because of the power of the resurrection that's available to us, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and because Jesus Christ intercedes for us, we can make a course change. We can allow God to turn some things around in our lives. And I want to show you something of that today. Here's where we're going to have our abrupt shift. I want to go all the way to the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I, I like to preach a message this time every year, give or take a week or two. I like to preach a message that we call, that I've called, Come Before Winter, and we focus on the last chapter, really just two or three verses in the last chapter of 2 Timothy. And it's, it's interesting, this is, uh, I trust in the providence of God, the first Sunday back that I get to preach from uh, my sabbatical, and it's come before winter in Psalm 39, and so we're just going to throw them all in the stew and see how it comes out. But there are some connections between these two things, the prayer of David and the request of the Apostle Paul. So let me read these familiar verses to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. So the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy's a pastor in Ephesus. The apostle Paul has really been uh, the one who has taught Timothy how to be a pastor. He has been the one to whom Timothy has, has turned. And Paul, uh, he has trained Timothy. He has developed Timothy. They have a very close relationship. Paul, at this point, he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. This would have been in the early 60s AD. And he's in prison in Rome because he continues to declare, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so he's been arrested and imprisoned and Paul is waiting execution. He's going to be killed because he continues to say that Jesus is risen from the grave. And so in that jail cell, in that prison, he writes just a few more letters. And one of those, the last of those, is what we call 2 Timothy. It's a letter he wrote to his dear son in the faith. It has a few words of encouragement. As I said, Timothy now is pastor at a church at Ephesus, and Paul uh, advises Timothy on some things. But then as the letter closes down, Paul really gives us an, an autobiographical sketch of the end of his life, and 
he issues an appeal uh, to, to Timothy. And we, so, we see here in verse 6, Paul says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering and my departure is, is, is at hand. It's close. Paul knows that he's going, his life's going to end soon. And so he, he sums up his life in the next verse, verse 7, is he says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Isn't that how we all want to end? And then verses, well, two verses later, verse 9, is where he issues his appeal. He says, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. Timothy, come. Come quickly. And then if you skip all the way down to verse 21, he says it again. Make every effort to come before winter. Why was Paul so urgent? Why was Paul pushing Timothy? You need to come see me, and you need to come quickly, and you need to come before winter. Why was Paul so urgent in this request? Well, as we've talked the last, um, last few years, as we've preached um, a, a version of this message every year, uh, we, we've learned that there are two reasons for Paul's urgency. Uh, the first reason is that Paul understood the temporary nature of life. Paul understood that life was brief. Now for him, he knew that his life was very brief, at least from that perspective. He knew that every time the door opened, it might be the executioner's coming to end his life. He knew every time he ate a meal that it might be his last meal. He knew every time he saw the sunset that he might not ever see it set again. He knew that his life was coming to a close. He knew that life was brief. And so he said to Timothy, you need to come see me and you need to come quickly. Paul understood the brevity of life. Now, we should understand the brevity of life. Our lives are short. We may not be waiting execution, but our lives are still short. Our lives are short. There are people in church today that won't be with us when we preach, if the Lord allows us to preach this sermon again next year. Lives are short. And it's not just those that are elderly that need to understand that life is short, but it's all of us. None of us know what tomorrow holds. I think about James chapter 4. The writer in verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll travel to such and such a city, spend a year there, and do business and make a profit. We're just going to, we're going about our life, and here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do next and next and next. And then the next verse says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what your life will be. You are like a vapor that appears for a little while, and then vanishes. You don't, you don't know. Life is short. And you know, it didn't occur to me until this morning, actually. He says at the end of James 4.14, when he says your life is a vapor, where do you think the writer got that image? Your life is a vapor. Well, he got it from Psalm 39, where it says the same thing both in verses 5 and 11. And so the writer of James also spent some time in Psalm 39. I'll read verse 5, Psalm 39, 5. You have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Friends, we need to have the kind of urgency in our life that, that Paul was, was instructing Timothy to have because life is brief. And one of the things that we do each year 
is I share some comparisons with you. And I know some of you look forward to this all year long because it's such an encouraging thing. But I share some comparisons, some mathematical comparisons, just, just as a reminder, just to encourage you. And so I like to begin by comparing a 78-year lifespan to an 18-hour day. Now, I know some of you, you have lived way beyond 78 years, and you're in overtime, and thank the Lord, right? And I hope God continues to give you many, many more overtimes. But 78 years, that's a pretty good guess, 78 years. So if we compare that to a, an 18-hour day, you wake up at 6 a.m., that's birth, and midnight, midnight is death. What time is it for you? Well, if you're 25 years old, it's 11.46 a.m. It's time for lunch. If you're 45, it's 4.23 in the afternoon. If you're 55, 6.42 p.m., prime time. If you're 65, it's 9 p.m. If you're 75, it's 11.18. All reasonable people are in bed and asleep. So happy holidays. That's my gift for you. Now, let me compare a 78-year lifespan. Maybe this will make better sense for you. Let me compare it instead of to a clock, let me compare it to a calendar. So January 1, that's birth. December 31st, that's the end. So what is your day? Well, if you're 30 years old, it's May 20th. If you're 40 years old, it's July the 6th. If you're 50 years old, August the 22nd. If you're 60, it's October 8th. If you're 70, it's Thanksgiving Day. I love encouraging people. <laughs> One more of these. And by the way, these were funnier to me about 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't know how much longer I'll be sharing these. If we compare a 78-year lifespan to a 60-minute football game. Man, this is for you. If you're 20 years old, the second quarter has just begun. If you're 34, you're in the middle eight. If you're a football fan, you know what that is, the middle eight. If you're 50 years old, you are halfway through the third quarter. If you're 60 years old, the clock says 13 minutes, 51 seconds left in the game. If you're 75, you just heard the two-minute whistle. <laughs> the brevity of life. It's not just that when you get older, you get closer to, to life's end. Uh, the, the truth is that life is brief no matter how old you are. And while young people will listen to this and not believe their pastor, let me tell you, Life goes faster every year. And if you're 25 years old and you're doing the math and you think there are a whole lot of years, at least statistically, left in your life, I'm telling you it's not near as long as you think it is even if you make it to that number because life is going to go faster and faster and faster. I remember when I was a kid, it seemed like from Thanksgiving to Christmas was a lifetime. My mom put this little calendar on the refrigerator so we could count down how many days to Christmas. And I thought that was the cruelest thing that my mother ever did because it seemed like Christmas would never come. But I can tell you as a man in his middle 50s, I think, I can't do the math anymore, but uh, 
it just seems like Christmas, Thanksgiving rather, and Christmas are just a week apart. I mean, it's just bang, bang, and here it is. And, and, and some of you will tell me when the service ends, Pastor, you have no idea how fast life will go. Life is, uh, life is brief. And so Paul understood the brevity of life. He also understood, though, the tenuous nature of opportunity. He understood that opportunity is limited. He, he, he told Timothy to come before winter. They got to understand a little bit about geography. Uh, Timothy's in Ephesus, Paul's in Rome. They're about a thousand miles apart, depending on how you measure it, whether it's as the crow flies or with the uh, more circuitous uh, naval path to connect the two places. It's about a thousand miles. And really the only way to get from Ephesus to Rome was by ship. The problem was that in the Mediterranean, the storm season is in the winter. It'd be like taking a cruise in a Caribbean cruise in August. That's not advisable. And, and with no weather predicting uh, instruments in those days, no sane person would get on a ship in the Mediterranean in the winter. And Paul knew this because he once did and the ship wrecked and he nearly died. And so Paul tells Timothy, winter is approaching and so you need to come, but the opportunity for you to come is, is about to pass. If you don't come now, it's going to be winter and you can't come. You see, there are opportunities that we have in life and we often look at those opportunities as if those will always be opportunities for us. But the truth is, those opportunities all have an expiration date. And so Paul tells Timothy, you need to come before winter because the opportunity is limited. This time of year as we as we watch and as we've seen the leaves fall, it's a reminder of the opportunities we had in 2023. And many of those opportunities have faded. And it's not just that the chance to do it is going to fade, but even our desire to do it is going to fade. We read from the words of Christ in, in Mark chapter 4 that, that sometimes God puts it on our heart to do something, but if we don't do it then, if we don't respond quickly, if we don't do what God has told us to do when God has told us to do it, our hearts change. It's not that we can't do it later, it's that we won't have a desire. Won't have a desire to do it later. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor that I've seen someone just this close to making an important decision, a commitment, but they gave it one more day or one more week or one more season, and it just, the desire for it went away. It could be that God has moved heaven and earth today for you to make a decision today and only today. And so there may be something that you need to say or do or give or change today. And if you don't do it today, you will not be able to say, do, give, or change it tomorrow. Maybe that you can't do it, not that you can't do it, but that you won't want to do it. So Paul says to Timothy, come before winter. Now, as I've shared in years past, it's the custom of many pastors to preach a message, come before winter. This isn't original to me. Uh, and many pastors uh, do this every year, and it's uh, been a tradition that, has, uh, that dates back for many, many years. And I won't go over the details of that today. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to take some of the struggles that I've faced in recent weeks and I, 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 want, to, I want to marry Psalm 39 with the 
come before winter uh, encouragement in 2 Timothy 4. And I want to share with you three areas. We'll probably only get to two, but, but, but two or three areas where if we want to be all that God wants us to be, if we want to have the strength, the stamina, if we want to have the, the energy, if we want to have the joy that God wants us to have, I want to share with you a couple of areas where you and I need to come before winter. Because life is short, opportunities are limited, we need to come before winter. First of all, in the area of prayer instead of distraction. Prayer instead of distraction. Prayer is our essential connection to the Lord. You know that. It is our ultimate lifeline. It is potentially our strongest card. It is the best play in the playbook. And it seems like that knowledge has been hardwired in our brains because everybody prays. Have you noticed that? Religious people pray, non-religious people pray. Christians pray, but Jews pray, Buddhists pray, Muslims pray, Jehovah's Witnesses pray, Mormons pray. Politicians pray, football players pray, everybody prays. You can especially see this tendency when people face a crisis. When turbulence hits an airplane at 30,000 feet, people pray. When people hear the roar of a tornado, they pray. When the doctor says you have cancer, you pray. But truthfully, church, most prayers are just exercises in self-deception. Most prayers are just wishful thinking put to words. Most prayers are desperate and hopeless pleas shouted to the abyss. But as children of God, as followers of Christ, that's not true for us, right? Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession and approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? To pray so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Prayer for those people who are in Christ is connecting the branch to the vine, John 15. It's casting our cares upon the Lord, 1 Peter 5. It's taking the yoke of Christ and knowing rest for our souls, Matthew 11. It's exchanging our burdens for God's peace, Philippians chapter 4. I meant to bring a, an electrical cord into the into my sermon this morning, uh, an extension cord, but you can imagine an extension cord pretty easily. I was going to hold it up and say, this cord, this extension cord, this electrical cord, not plugged into an, to an outlet, is useless. But if you plug it in, it can do all kinds of things, right? You plug it in, it can make things come alive. You plug it in, it can make things move and spin and heat up. If you plug it in, you can cook and clean and cut and compute and communicate and create. You plug it in, it can do all kinds of things. But when it's unplugged, well, all you can do is complain. Why doesn't it work? Why doesn't it come on? Why is it so dark? Why is it so cold? Church, it's time to come before winter. With respect to false fostering and cultivating a life of, of prayer. 
Because the light will never come on until you plug the lamp in. And because the machine will never whirl until it's plugged in. And our Christian lives will never be what God desires for them to be. They will never be as strong as God wants them to be. They, they, they will never be as resilient as God wants them to be. They will never be as joy-filled. They will, they, they will never, never be as peaceful on the inside as God intends for them to be until we come before winter in this area of really cultivating a life of, of prayer. Prayer is the essential component walking with Christ and knowing the fullness of God's wisdom and peace. It's something that takes practice. It takes time. It's a learned skill. It doesn't come easily or quickly. But if we're only going to be good at one thing in life, this is the one thing we should be good at. If you're only going to be good at one thing, be good at prayer. And if you're wondering how a person who is struggling with depression can pray, and I, I've learned that that's a harder task than you might imagine. Uh, I don't have time right now, but I, I wrote about this in Psalm 39, and you can find it on my website. It is part five of a multi-part Psalm 39 uh, project. You know, most Christians intend... They plan on being men and women of prayer, but most, most of us never get there. You know who mostly prays in churches? I shouldn't tell you this. It's some behind-the-scenes secret. You know who prays around here? I imagine that 90% of all the prayers in our church are prayed by people who are 70 years old and older. You might say, why is that? Because they're the only people in our church that are smart enough to pray. You know? I, I, I think as Christians, we get a little wiser every year. And I don't know, somewhere in there, 70 years, it, it, you know, the wisest people in our church are the oldest people. It's clear. You just talk to them. They, they're the wisest people and they're the praying people. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Listen, it doesn't have to work that way. All of us could be good at prayer. God never intended that you would be a person in this difficult life that we face apart from a vital prayer life. God never intended that you would be a mom with all the challenges without also having a vital prayer life. God never intended that you would face the temptations that you face, men, without at the same time having a vital prayer life. If you're struggling through life without a vital prayer life, surprise, 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 right? It's time we come before winter in the area of cultivating a prayer life that honors God and connects with what God wants to do every day in our lives. You know, if we took a survey in our church and asked how many people here believe in the value of prayer, what do you think the result would be? 
It wouldn't be unanimous because we're a Baptist church and there's always two or three percent that just, they'd be against Jesus, but um, it'd be most of us, right? But there's a difference between believing it and doing it. It's time to come before winter. Let me give you number two. I know I'm out of time. I'll go quickly. It's time to come before winter in Thanksgiving instead of bitterness. Uh, Thanksgiving instead of bitterness. Uh, one of the things that will put you in an emotional rut and leave you there is failing to choose every day Thanksgiving over bitterness. Now I want to show this to you in just a couple of verses, that familiar verses, but I want to dissect them today and I want to show you how the key piece to this is, is the piece we call Thanksgiving. So look with me on the screen, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So familiar passage, but let me break it down just word or two at a time. Follow me on the screens. The first thing I want you to see is the phrase, don't worry. Worry. You see it there? We circled it for you. Don't worry. Now, what's worry talking about? That's talking about some form of anxiety. We're anxious about things. Anxiety. Don't worry. Now, the next key word is requests. Request. So he says, not only should we not worry, but he goes on down, present your requests to God. So these people who are addressed in this passage, number one, they struggle with anxiety. Number two, they struggled with some burdens. They were asking. They had requests. They had needs. So they had burdens. I don't know what kind, physical burdens, mental burdens, emotional burdens, but they were, they were burdened. The next word I want you to see, peace. If you'll do this, then God will give you peace. Well, what does that tell us about the audience of this group? They were people who didn't have peace. They, they were struggling with stress or they were struggling with depression or despondency, but they didn't have peace. The next, the next word I want you to see is the word guard. He says he will guard your hearts and minds. Well, that tells us that the people who, to whom this verse was, was originally given, they were people who needed guarding. That means that they had fear or uncertainty or hopelessness or they felt very vulnerable. So I don't think it's stretching the passage too far to say that these two verses are addressing people who have one or more of the following problems. They're struggling with anxiety, depression, stress, fear, uncertainty, hopelessness, and vulnerability. All of those are needs that the original audience of these two verses had. Now we're going to continue to look because this, this passage is just, uh, it's a treasure chest. So if we, if we look a little further, it, it tells us to do some things. It tells us to pray, prayer. So we should pray. And then it tells us that we should bring our petitions to the Lord. That's just another way of saying pray. So pray and pray. And then it tells us to present your request to the Lord. What does that mean? Pray. So pray, pray, and pray. Pray, pray, and pray. That's pretty simple. Now, what will God do... If we, those of us who are struggling with anxiety, depression, stress, fear, uncertainty, hopelessness, and vulnerability, if we pray, pray, and pray, what will God do? Well, we'll keep looking. It says he will provide the peace of God. Peace, peace, peace is what we want, right? We've got the circumstances around me. I've got all the things that 
hardships around me. I've got my fears, my vulnerabilities, the stress inducers. He'll give me peace. But it goes on and it says peace beyond understanding. What does that mean? That means peace that's not connected with circumstances. You see, some peace you understand. If somebody walks up to you and, and, and your, your problem is a, a financial struggle and they give you $10 million, that'll bring some financial peace. But that's peace that you understand, right? You understand how you got the financial peace. It's the $10 million. But this is a peace that's not connected with the change of circumstances necessarily. It is a heavenly peace. And what will that peace do? It will guard your hearts and minds. What does it mean to guard your hearts and minds? It doesn't say it will guard your house, your car, your kids. Guard your hearts and minds. Well, it's talking about your emotions. It's talking about your emotions. But we see a bunch of things circled in that verse, those verses. But there's one word I hadn't circled. Do you see it? What's the key? What's the key attitude to all of this? I mean, this is a beautiful equation. You've got these needs, you do these things, God brings this solution. Can you get any better than that? you got the needs, you do the actions, God brings the solution. But there's one key piece, there's a key attitude that makes all of this work. Do you see it right in the middle? With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. That's the key piece. That's what is so critical here. Without thanksgiving, none of this works. Without thanksgiving, you won't pray and God won't guard and bring peace Thanksgiving is the key to all of this. Thanksgiving, the choice to be thankful instead of bitter. Well, first of all, it's a choice. Uh, people will, will debate you on that, but the Bible says it's a choice. Colossians 3.15 says it's a choice. Psalm 100 verse 4 says it's a choice. Hebrews 12, 28 says it's a choice. Colossians 4, 2 says it's a choice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 says it's a choice. Ephesians 5, 20 says it's a choice. And so to deny that you could choose to be thankful instead of bitter is to deny reality and it's to deny the word of God. You see, thanksgiving and bitterness, they're mutually exclusive and they're different sides of a seesaw. When, when thanksgiving goes up, bitterness goes down. When thanksgiving goes down, bitterness and anger and frustration go up and we get to choose the tilt of the seesaw. Now, I know you can come up with reasons to be bitter and so can I. I could make a list of things that I don't think are fair, things I don't think I should have to deal with, decisions I think people shouldn't have made, things I think people shouldn't have said. I can make my pity party list as good as anybody. But I guarantee as a Christian, I can make a better list of things to be thankful for. And if you're struggling with that, I give you one to start with. You are a child of God, forgiven and adopted and an heir to eternal life. You see, our attitude, or at least our potential attitude, is determined by one thing, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus rose from the grave, it gave me the trump card for choosing thankfulness that outweighs any reason somebody might have for bitterness. Listen, church, we must come before winter in the area of being thankful. We need to look for reasons to be thankful. And when we struggle, we need to look to who we are in Christ. When I was a kid, me and my sister would make contorted faces at each other, you know, cross our eyes and, you know, make funny faces. 
And my mom uh, always said the same thing. I bet some of you know. She'd say, you better not do that because what? Your face is going to freeze like that. Now, listen, kids, if that's what your parents say, you need to tune out the pastor for just a moment. But I think my mom just made that up. I've never seen anybody's face freeze like that. But I'll tell you something else, something that can freeze like that, your attitude. You could be bitter one day too long and your face will freeze like that. And I've promised the Lord I will not turn this sermon into an autobiographical sketch, but I'm telling you that we need to come before winter in the attitude of choosing thanksgiving, thankfulness instead of bitterness. Because it just might be that we have come to the day that if we'll be bitter, if we choose to be bitter one day longer, our face will freeze like that. And I think I was there a month ago. We need to come before winter in the area of choosing thankfulness over bitterness. Number three, we need to come before winter in the area of fellowship instead of isolation. I'm not going to preach this, uh, but uh, this gives me an opportunity for an advertisement. We, um, we're starting tomorrow some video daily devotions, and they're about 10 minutes a day. Uh, sometimes they're 11 because I'm a preacher, but sometimes they're eight. So we've got these videos every day. And what we do is we, uh, I walk you through some verses of scripture. Uh, we've started in Hebrews chapter one, verse one it's tomorrow. We work through Hebrews a few verses at a time and, um, you can get it on YouTube, Facebook. Uh, I told somebody last week, you can get it on a podcasting app so you can do the video or the audio. Uh, you can, uh, listen as you get ready in the morning or as you drive to work. Uh, it, it, it'll just help you have, if you don't have, a daily devotion. I told somebody, if you're searching for it on your podcast app or YouTube or Facebook or anything, just search for Noel Deer. There are only three of us in the world. Did you know that? There's me and the other two are teenage girls in Malaysia. <laughs> and so far as I know, they're not, uh, they're not doing online Bible teaching. And so until they do, I'm an easy person to find. And point number three happens in one of the devotions this next week. Let me close with this. 2 Timothy 4, 9, 21, Paul said to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon before winter. Of course, the number one area that we need to respond to Christ is, is to understand that apart from Christ, we're guilty of sin and we're hopeless. But because of Christ, because of his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, because of that, we can have hope. We can have forgiveness if we'll surrender to Christ and trust in him. and Profess our faith in Christ. That's one of those th commitments that is not only urgent, but it's timely. God gives us a window. Listen, God gives us a window to respond to grace and mercy. And the Bible teaches that outside that window, it may be too late. If you've never called upon the Lord today, call upon the Lord. 